Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from the book of Jonah. The Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? The word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. God in heaven, meet us now. Meet us now in this time where we look back at this ancient story. Help us to see ourselves more clearly in the story of Jonah. Also, help us to see Jesus more clearly this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again, City Church. I'm so glad to be back with you today to take a second look at what I believe to be one of the great wisdom stories of all time, this very short and spectacularly strange book of Jonah. We began part one two weeks ago, noting how Jesus in Matthew 12 says to the religious establishment of his day that the only way they can understand his ministry is through the sign of Jonah. 
So if it was that important for Jesus, I think it's important for us to dig in and to discern what's really going on in this story. And last time we took a look at the ancient motif called the night sea journey. It's an archetypal sort of pattern in ancient stories to illustrate a moment of great struggle or transformation in a hero's life. And here you've got the hero, or maybe he's a bit of an anti-hero, Jonah. And like most great heroes, he initially rejects God's call on his life. God says, go east to Nineveh and preach to them, tell them to repent from their violent and wicked ways, save them from judgment. But instead, Jonah bolts 2,000 miles in the opposite direction, or at least tries to, to the west towards Tarshish, which is Mediterranean Spain, in a boat with a crew made up of sailors from all over the world who worshiped all different gods. God sees Jonah trying to run away, and he sends a huge storm. The sailors, they're worried for their lives, and they draw lots. It's this ancient way of asking the gods, what did we do wrong? What do we do now? And the lots all point to Jonah. Jonah admits he's a Hebrew running from the God who created the heavens and the sea and the land. And the only solution, the only solution is to throw him overboard. The sailors do everything in their power to avoid that. They try to return Jonah back to shore, but to no avail. And then reluctantly praying for forgiveness, they throw Jonah overboard. And we talked last week or two weeks ago about how this is the moment of surrender and descent for Jonah. Also a typical pattern in these night sea journeys. He surrenders to the God he was fleeing from and he sinks down, down, down into the unknown, down into the abyss, into the underworld, which shows up in the form of an enormous, enormous fish. Jesus calls it a sea monster, and we usually popularize it as the whale. And what we began to see two weeks ago, and we'll look more closely today, is this underworld is both a tomb, it's a form of death, but it's also a womb. It's a place where transformation and growth happens, and you're eventually born, reborn, into new life. And I really think this belly of the whale journey takes on some added importance right now, this year, in 2020, because we're all facing versions of being cut off from the world, cut off from people we love. We're all facing a form of confinement and limitation and quarantine, as well as external threats of disease. We're also watching our nation here in America go through a very tumultuous and challenging time. And internally, we're also dealing with intense psychological difficulties of living in long-term ambiguity. Long-term ambiguity, which no human being is naturally well-equipped to handle. The inability to know what's next, to know how to plan, to know what steps to take this year. All of that, all of that takes a very deep psychological toll. And you know, in just the last week, the CDC issued a report showing, and quite alarmingly, that um, anxiety in America, rates of anxiety are up three times over a year ago. Rates of depression are up four times, 400% compared to a year ago. And when taken all together, nearly a third, nearly a third of all Americans are reporting some kind of serious symptom of either clinical anxiety or clinical depression. So it's challenging. It's challenging to be in the belly of the whale and our bodies and our minds show it. But 
the isolation and limitation and ambiguity imposed by a moment like this also raises new opportunities for transformation and growth. That's part of the belly of the whale experience as well. And you know, the Irish-American uh, theologian and psychologist Thomas More, commenting on Jonah and commenting on the night sea journey, said, the whale's belly, the whale's belly is, of course, a kind of womb. It is, of course, a kind of womb. It's a time of waiting and trusting. The night sea journey takes you back to your primordial self, not the heroic self that burns out and falls to judgment, but to your original self, yourself as a sea of possibility, your greater and deeper being. So there's a purpose. There's a purpose to being in the belly of the whale if we're willing to look for it. And in our story, God certainly is working on Jonah in that moment, in the whale. And it's right there that Jonah writes a beautiful psalm. He actually writes a song reflecting on his deep descent and on God's mercy toward him. Now, on the one hand, as we heard that psalm read just a minute ago, on the one hand, it's artistic and beautiful and very heartfelt. It starts off with verse one, I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, Jonah said. I was in the lowest parts of the earth, in the underworld, but you heard me. You heard my voice. I ran from your voice. I ran from your command, but you listened and responded to me. You did not abandon me. And you know, we talked some last time about how running from God, how rejecting the call is actually a common and often necessary part of the journey of transformation. It's a bit of a paradox because on the one hand, you're not following your call, you're, you're disobeying God. But on the other hand, God is using that running to shape you. And so we shouldn't be discouraged when we're unable to attain instant maturity or when others around us can't either. Jo Jonah goes on to say, the waters, the waters, they closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Jonah sees that he's deep in the downward journey. And it is in that deepest place that God reaches down and saves him. So it's really amazing, an ancient night sea journey, God saving a prophet who had rejected his call, the God of sky, sea, land, and storm, and all the creatures sends a huge whale or sea monster to carry Jonah underwater back east three days. I mean, it has all the signs of a perfectly happy ending. God is good and merciful, and Jonah grows up into a really mature prophet. But, in a brilliant move, I think it's brilliant, the story takes a bit of a turn. Even in Jonah's beautiful psalm, Jewish and Christian scholars can see a couple troubling signs, particularly near the end, things that make you wonder, what's really going on here? What's really going on with Jonah and the whale? So let's take a look at just those last few verses of the psalm. Starting at verse 7, he says, As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. All right, that, that's good. That sounds good so far. And then in verse 8, he says, Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I 
with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Now let's just interrogate that a bit, that line, those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. It's kind of complicated, but true loyalty here is actually translating the Hebrew word hesed. It's a very important word in the Old Testament, and it's always referring to the covenant love that exists between God and God's people. So it's almost like Jonah is saying, those who worship vain idols turn their back on a loving relationship with the true God, which is great. That makes sense. But then Jonah says, but I, but I, he distinguishes himself, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice in what I've owed, what I've vowed, I will pay. Now we got to zoom in here just a little bit to see what's going on because most scholars believe Jonah is directly referring to the Ninevites when he calls out those who worship false idols forsake God's love, but then he's contrasting himself as someone who fulfills their religious duty. But I will sacrifice, but I will pay what I vowed. So there's a little bit, at least a little bit of self-righteous piety creeping into this otherwise beautiful psalm. I mean, Jonah is the one stuck in the belly of like a smelly whale. And he's the one that's just been saved from drowning, for running from the true God. And so it seems a little odd, like a strange time maybe, to be contrasting himself favorably with the lost people of Nineveh. So there's some mixed motives in this pretty beautiful prayer, but also mixed motives. I mean, it's partly deeply sincere, and it's also a little troubling. And that troubling part becomes a little more clear as the story continues. And maybe you're like me, and you wish the Bible could just be a little simpler, a little more clear. Maybe this could just be one of those beautiful stories of permanent repentance, and Jonah just kind of goes straight up into the right from this point out. But isn't this the way life and faith really works? I mean, if you're anything like me, you can point to transformative times in your life. I mean, maybe you're going through one right now. Times when God and life seem to conspire to take you through something really challenging, to challenge your source of security, to challenge your sense of control, to maybe challenge bad habits or patterns in your life. And as you feel yourself sort of turning the corner on those moments, or maybe sensing that you're nearing a breakthrough, you might have that brief sense of just how much better you're gonna be now. Like what a freaking blessing you're gonna be to the whole world now that you've been to the valley and back. Now that you've learned to pray or meditate, now that you maybe have a healthier self-identity, now that you've maybe repaired that broken relationship. You know, whatever the growth point is, we're quick to think it's all gonna be up from here. And how long until we realize that yes, maybe we've taken a big step forward, but also yes, we're still a complete mess. And that all of our prayers, the spoken ones and the unspoken ones are a mix. They're a mix of absolutely beautiful dependence on God and selfish egotism. It's always both. And it probably always will be. But here's the thing. God is far more comfortable with our complexity and our contradictions 
and our inconsistent growth than we are. God is far more comfortable with our complexity, our contradictions, and our inconsistent growth than we are. And the only thing God's not going to do is to allow those inconsistencies to remain hidden forever and to let us live deceived forever about who we really are. And so God continues to work on us and God continued to work on Jonah in our story, as we'll see. So Jonah's prayer wraps up with something like this. This is a paraphrase. You know, God, you're so good. You saved me even when I was running from you. You lifted me up when I was drowning. But boy, those Ninevites, they're, they're just so dumb for worshiping false idols and just, you know, forsaking you. But I, but I, I will pay my vows for deliverance comes from the Lord. That's a fair summary of the end of that prayer. And then we look at verse 10, which is awesome. I think it's going to go on the screen. Then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. Then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, I put the NIV translation on the screen because it's actually a little more clear, a little more accurate than the one we read today. Because the Hebrew is very clear to say the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. I mean, there are a lot of different ways the text could have read in Hebrew. You know, it could have said the whale delivered Jonah to the dry land. It could have said the whale spat Jonah up or coughed him up. It could have just said, you know, the whale opened its mouth and Jonah just kind of walked out. But here, the language goes out of its way to specifically use the bodily term vomit. Now, I've never seen a fish vomit. I have no idea. I've never seen it even on like Discovery Channel, but it sounds disgusting and particularly a giant fish with a human living inside of it. But this isn't the sort of thing you can nail down with 100% proof, but several scholars, several scholars, and I'm going to throw my non-scholarly vote in with this because it just makes the story so well-shaped and well-rounded. Several scholars specifically believe that the imagery here is the whale is responding in revulsion in disgust to the pious move that Jonah is making, contrasting himself with the lost Ninevites. The whale vomits Jonah and all his piety onto the new shore. Jonah's transformation, not quite finished. So there's Jonah. There's Jonah on the shore, just having been vomited by a fish, probably not looking or feeling his best, And God says to him for the second time, you're going to Nineveh. Go preach to them and tell them to change their violent ways so they can avoid judgment and destruction. And this time Jonah goes. He goes and he gives, and I'm being a little silly here, kind of hate to say it, but he gives just about the worst sermon I can imagine. The worst sermon in the history of sermons. It's It's not, actually it is in our passage today, so we're going to put it on the screen as well so we can read this masterpiece together. It's an eight-word sermon. This is the whole thing. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, that's it. That's the whole sermon. Eight words. Points on brevity and directness. But Sorry, people, that's just like a horrible sermon. I mean, it's like Jonah's not even trying, but the crazy thing is it works. It works. And we see in our passage today, in the latter part of our passages, that the people hear it and they believe Jonah, and then the king hears it, 
And he gets off his throne, he covers himself with sackcloth and ashes and orders all the people and all the animals to also cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes. And they impose a citywide fast. Everyone is called to turn from their evil and violent ways. And God sees all this and decides to show great mercy to Nineveh and he spares them from destruction. So it works. The same gracious God that rescues Jonah when he's running away and drowning uses Jonah's eight-word sermon to convince the Ninevites to change their ways, to improve their society, and the destruction is averted. And you'd think, you'd think Jonah would be celebrating, but he's not happy at all. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, but this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Despite Jonah's running and repentance, despite God's immense mercy in saving him from drowning, despite Jonah's deep reflection and partial transformation in the belly of that whale, I mean, despite all that, Jonah's core spiritual operating system hasn't really changed. In Jonah's world, the Ninevites were violent and immoral, And they deserve to be judged. And most early readers of this book would have agreed with that. And then second, God was merciful and abounding in love, which is great, but only to the extent that mercy and love is provided on Jonah's terms. It's provided to the people that Jonah believes to be worthy. Which means at the end of Jonah's psalm, when he declares salvation is from the Lord, What he really means is salvation comes from God, but I want to control it. I want to control it. So we begin to see what this story is really about. It's not primarily about the salvation of Nineveh at all. It's about the salvation of Jonah. And perhaps Jonah standing in as a symbol for the entire nation of Israel, which in an extended way, applies to the church today. This is a story filled with God's compassion and love showing up everywhere. I mean, God's love shows up amongst the pagan sailors at sea trying to save Jonah. God's love shows up in the belly of the sea monster. God's love shows up in wicked Nineveh. But the only place in the story God's love does not seem to be operationalized is in the heart of Jonah. The Ninevites were despised for their violence. But Jonah's heart was at war with the compassion and mercy of God. Rosemary Nixon is a scholar in the UK, and she's written on the Jonah story. And she says, violence not only exists in the physical world, such as in natural disasters and earthquakes, but also in the secret hidden world of the human heart and imagination. This is something we're often tempted to avoid Only the spirit of the living God can tease out and release us 
from the power of destructive violence within. Jonah, Jonah could only process God's love and mercy in a way that was logically connected to his own personal view of merit and worthiness. But I think we all do that to greater or lesser degrees. I mean, we don't really know what to do with the sheer immensity of God's grace and love. And so our egos try to manage it and package it. And in doing that, they limit it. As Richard Rohr notes, the ego does not know how to receive things freely or without logic. The ego likes to be worthy and needs to understand in order to accept things as true. The ego prefers a worldview of scarcity or quid pro quo where only the clever can win. That problem and its overcoming is at the very center of the gospel plotline. It has always been overcome from God's side. The only problem is getting us in on the process. And that's what this story is about. Jonah, God trying to get Jonah, trying to get Israel, trying to get us in on God's process of pouring out grace and love indiscriminately. The Jonah story ends with a final scene, a short little sort of parable at the end. I'm going to summarize it real quick, but Jonah is dismayed. Um, He's just made by this encounter, as we just read. And so he hikes a little ways out of the city, out into the desert, and he makes a little seat out there with whatever materials he could find. And then he just sits down and watches Nineveh from a distance, watches and waits to see what will happen. He's angry and depressed, basically sulking and probably still hoping that somehow Nineveh will be overthrown, destroyed. And it's hot. It's hot out there, so God commands a bush to grow up quickly around Jonah, and this miracle bush provides Jonah with shade from the sun, and Jonah is really happy about it. He loves this bush. But then that night, God sends a worm, and that worm eats the bush so that it withers and dies. So when the sun comes up the next day, there's no bush, there's no shade, and God sends an extra hot east wind. So there's Jonah sitting in the hot sun, missing his miracle shade bush, staring at the still not destroyed Nineveh, and he's miserable. And again, for at least the second time, he says he wants to die. And it reminds me of this quote by Auden where he says, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Despite it all, Jonah is completely stuck. He's stuck in his illusions of who deserves grace and who deserves judgment. He's stuck in a false sense of piety. He was so accustomed to thinking about the Ninevites as violent oppressors, which they were, that he was blind to the violence in his own heart. He was so accustomed to thinking about the Ninevites as idol worshipers who had forsaken God's love that he completely overlooks the fact that his rigidity is itself a form of idol worship and that he is the one who has placed arbitrary boundaries on how far God's love should be extended. He's the one who's done that. 
He's so stuck, he'd rather die than change. Rosemary Nixon concludes, Jonah's not simply unwilling to go to Nineveh. The text points to Jonah's unwillingness to let God be God. As a result, he himself was unable to be fully human and became unable to see others as fully human. Instead, in Jonah's eyes, they remained pagans who followed other gods, people outside the covenant mercies of Yahweh. Preferring the shadow to the real, the comfort to the struggle, the sense of having arrived to the perils of discovery, Jonah remained cocooned in a belief system which protected him from the struggles and sufferings of others. And then I love this part, so let's all like tune in clearly to this bit. Idolatry. Idolatry is not always expressed in the worship of strange gods or wooden images. It commonly takes the form of holding rigidly to a belief system which fails to recognize the loving freedom of the living God. A system of belief which offers security to its adherents while threatening those who cannot accept it is an idolatrous belief system. Jonah's belief which ensured security for those who accepted it and threatened those who did not, was blown apart by God's freedom. In God's sight, people have priority over belief systems, a theme powerfully fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Wow, in God's sight, people have priority over belief systems, and limiting God's freedom is a form of idolatry. And Jonah just did not know what to do with the free and loving God that just kept showing up. So we've taken two weeks, two weeks to look at this remarkable story, but there's just one tiny little twist, one additional one at the end, because the story ends in a question. The Jonah story ends in a question. It gives Jonah and us, in a sense, the last word, or it gives us something to think about, to work on. And this is fairly common in wisdom stories to end in a question, but it's not that common for entire books of the Bible. I think there's only one other book, the prophet Nahum, that also ends in a question. But here's how it goes. And this is the last three verses of the entire story. But God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? God is putting the question back on Jonah and on us. What limits will we put on God's compassion? What limits will we put on God's compassion? The limits only come from us. They don't come from God. And the truth is we vastly underestimate God's grace and God's love all the time. And we will for our whole life. The challenge or the invitation of this story in the entire gospel story is to allow ourselves to be continually blown away by God's love and God's freedom.
And what a life that would be, a life of continually being surprised by God's love, surprised by God's freedom, surprised by the new life and new opportunity that God's always bringing. I mean, that's the kind of life I long for. And you know, I'm not much of a tweeter, meaning the platform Twitter. Um, I've tried many times, but I always give up. But the most popular thing by far, and like by far, that I ever wrote on that platform was five and a half years ago. So I, I reached my peak Twitter influence five and a half years ago, and it's been just downward since then. I wrote a short sentence, just a very short sentence, as our church was going through a whale belly sort of moment, when we were learning to open up a bit further and trust a bit more into the immensity of God's freedom and God's grace. And here's what I wrote, very short. I often think in the end, our final tears will be over how massively we've underestimated God's grace for others and ourselves. I often think in the end, our final tears will be over how massively we underestimated God's grace for others and for ourselves. Because I do think that after a lifetime of being surprised by God's love and grace, we will still end our journey having vastly underestimated its scope. But let's live as people who expect to be surprised over and over again. And especially this week ahead, let's pray for or let's pay some prayerful attention to the barriers we've placed between God's love and others, and just as importantly, between God's love and ourselves. And so instead of praying us out today, I'm going to close us out with a short work by the prophet, not the prophet, well, maybe, by the poet Rumi. This is called, uh, After the Darkness, There Are Many Suns. After the Darkness, There Are Many Suns. It's no good to be hopeless. It's no good to be hopeless. This is what the prophets have taught. God's grace and mercy is boundless. It is unbecoming of us with such a lovely God to be hopeless. Hang on to God's saddle and go for a ride. So many tasks that appeared hard at the beginning, then opened up, eased up, hardship passed. After hopeless, there is so much hope. After darkness, there are many suns. Amen.